0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when
1: you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: If you enjoy the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, check out our new daily news program, the Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It gives you the day's top stories with context. In just 15 minutes, look for it in your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern every morning. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a sample of today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak at the very end of this podcast.
3: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. A real question around where we are in terms of the rally and whether it has legs And joining us to really get into that is Anne Maletti, Head of Active Equity at Allspring Global Investments. Before we get into and welcome this question of do we end up with just a stock-picking market, can you pile in and get some sort
1: of sense of relief from the rally that seems to only be gaining steam? It's a great question, Lisa. And, and I think the hardest part for investors is... Do I stay on the sidelines or not? And we were talking earlier, is the market really pulled and drawn by emotion? And it is. It always has been. And so investors have to fight that emotion every step of the way um, and remain disciplined. And I think despite all of the kind of chaos that's happening around us and outside of us, within the economy, with the Fed, with global um uh, global unrest. I think it's brought a lot of focus to our investment teams, and what they're looking at is the narrow focus on which stocks you want to own. I think investors, when you're out of the market, you have to be really careful about when you get in. What I tell people is, regardless if you know overall there's negativity or positivity, you really want to always have some allocation in equities. So let's pick some stocks: Nvidia, yes. Meta. <laughs> Tesla, (laughs) you like all the popular ones. No, (laughs) I'm I'm just wondering. I mean,
3: how do you basically understand what valuation even means at a time when things are going to the moon based on promise of future invention?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think what's been really interesting is the flow in that we're seeing into equities is going into index funds, right? Most most importantly, and when that happens, investors are buying more of the big names and paying a lot more for those names. That's just the way it works. And so in a way, active managers are a little bit trying to not fight that trend. We own some of those names too, but we're also trying to find those names that haven't been recognized. We're really, you know, like mining for gold right now. There are opportunities that do exist out there.
4: In an emotional market, Where do value stocks come in?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Neela. And, you know, as you saw in the beginning part, actually last year when the markets really started to kind of pay attention to value, there were good reasons for it. Multiples were compressing, and that's when investors went to value. I like to think about it like don't discriminate between value and growth, right? You can buy high quality goods at a good price. So I kind of like to say I like to shop at Sachs or Neiman's, just don't like to pay full price. I kind of think our investment teams like to do the same thing, right? They want to buy quality companies, but they want to pay a good price for them. And there's real opportunity to do that now. So I would say don't discriminate between value and growth.
3: I just wonder what does even value mean? Yeah, I mean, a- honestly, no, I'm serious. I was talking to some people, and they're saying that basically, conservative stocks, defensive stocks, value stocks, everything's tech. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what everyone is saying. So, at what point do you start to say, well, maybe we're just falling behind? And if you own the broader index, well, at least you'll catch the stories that might come out of nowhere
1: and blow up the index. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And um, you know, over the years, you know, people have categorized value and growth separately. But as you know, we've had big industries change from, you know, we've seen energy via value industry and energy via growth industry. And so I think investors have to kind of frame that up. And I think, Lisa, you did really well. Any category, any company can move from value to growth at any time, which is why we kind of face the individual stocks, individual companies and look at what we're paying for them. Just quickly here, going into
3: the second half, we've gotten a lot of reassessments. A lot of people are just getting more bullish. That seems to be the theme pretty much across the board, with the exception of Mike Wilson. But I'm wondering, from your vantage point, how you're shifting either the names or your thesis heading into December?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Lisa, because clearly, I think the last time I was on the show, I said we expected the rally to kind of either spread down market cap, which we have started to see. A little bit. We would expect that to continue if the rally is going to continue. Investors are going to flow more broadly into the market. But again, I think our investment team's focus is looking for those unique opportunities, trimming names where the valuation just doesn't make sense. Because what we do is all about risk versus reward and really trying to set up our investors to protect them against big risk, and focus on reward over time. Because again, the future's pretty foggy. All right. Well, Emily, thank you
3: so much. In the foggy future, after the fog has luckily
1: passed uh,
3: for us in the New York City. Emily of Allspring, thank you so much.
0: Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success
5: is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing. The passion to keep investing. The best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
6: Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: Joining us now, Jens Nordweg, founder and CEO of Exante Data and Market Reader. Jens, what's your takeaway that we do have these divergent central banks? Is it just a matter of the U.S. getting out front, having a cycle that it had to deal with first, and everybody else catching up? Or is this truly a splintering of the biggest global economies at a time of great transition?
7: I I think there's an element of both, right? So clearly the U.S. uh, started to recover quicker. The stimulus was more aggressive in the U.S., And therefore, the U.S. cycle has been more front-loaded, right? And then we have economies such as the eurozone economy where uh, the stimulus was slower uh, and uh, more drawn out. And uh, we are having a, a situation now where inflation is actually having more momentum in the Eurozone than in the in the US, and therefore the ECB cannot do any pausing. The ECB has the signal that it's gonna go every single meeting, right? And they are highly likely to be hiking in July and probably September and maybe even further than that, right, so this is the first time for a while where we've seen monetary policy divergence in a way that's gonna support the Euro. We saw a big, big move yesterday. And then I think if we scan the globe, right, Then there's some special issues around China, right? So I think one data point that's very important this year is that we've had a China reopening. We have had some recovery in certain sectors in China, right? But there's no inflation pressure in China, right? If we compare to other countries that have reopened, we are not seeing any inflation pressure in China that resembles what we've seen in other reopening situations. And that's really important. And uh, this is also a sort of evidence that there's something structurally different in the Chinese economy. And, uh, and, and one thing that I think investors are not paying enough attention to is that there's been a massive structural shift in terms of the capital flow that's coming in into China, right? It used to be the case that people just wanted to invest in China, build manufacturing capacity in China, but that foreign direct investment from companies has uh, slowed very, very dramatically, and that has not recovered after reopening. So that's a structural shift that's very important for everything, including the Chinese currency. Right. What do you make of China's attempt to get more and more trade occur in the yuan? Are they attempting to, over time, become a competitor to the dollar in terms of reserve currency? Is this just going to be a small, tiny part of world trade? Where do you stand on that? So China is a huge part of of global trade in terms of the goods moving around, right? But uh, they've been attempting to get that stuff invoiced in in local currency and, and try to create competition to the dollar. But look at how uh, the, the yuan has been trading this year, right? We're we up uh, over the last two days. But the big trend has been uh, the Chinese currency has underperformed very dramatically, consistent with monetary policy being uh, uh, one of the easiest in the world, right? There have not been any tightening related to the inflation dynamic that I spoke about, right? So we have a situation where from a trade perspective, China is in a very strong position and could argue, okay, we dominate many, many types of trade. We should have a reserve currency aspect, right? But when you look at the asset side, nobody wants to buy the Chinese bonds. Uh, there's literally outflows from Chinese bonds almost every single month. Even central banks around the world are starting to reduce CNY holdings, right? So it doesn't have the reserve currency aspect on the asset side. It's only on the trade that you can make the argument. And uh, that's that's why that goal that the Chinese have is not so easy to achieve. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And where do you see Japan playing out? I think that's a country we're seeing actually get a lot of benefit from people moving away from China and their power in the region is important. And clearly their stock market's done very well. Where do you see Japan playing out in terms of the global economy? Yes, yeah, so I think if you sort of look at a situation where global multinationals are getting more cautious about investing aggressively in China... Where are they going to build capacity, right? So there's a a number of of countries in Asia that have uh, manufacturing histories. Japan is one of them. Korea is another one. And then there's newer countries like uh, Taiwan and and, uh, obviously Thailand and and Vietnam too. And closer to the US, Mexico is benefiting from that, right? So we do have a number of emerging markets that are going to stand to benefit from that. Uh, Japan is a bit of a special case. Uh, they have their own demographic issues and so forth. But clearly, uh, the Nikkei is now moving in a, in a way that's very interesting. And uh, it, it's a very ironic situation. You have uh, inflation in Japan that is running around 5% in terms of the momentum we're seeing on core. And financial conditions are easing, right? Bond yields are, are pegged at, at zero effectively, right? and uh, equity indices are uh, going higher the yen is going weaker right so eventually this is going to create a problem for the bank of japan that they have to deal with
3: given all of this does it make sense that people are just looking at the divergences and saying i guess there's only one thing to do go into big tech i mean that basically was the theme of the week go into big tech go into the euro those were the two trades of the week do they have lasting power
7: So uh, I'm getting asked, uh, if not uh, every day, certainly every week, we're getting asked about, okay, is the AI trend a bubble, right? Is it overdone? Um, There are certain companies where the valuations look uh, pretty crazy, right? But uh, I have to say, take a step back. We think about this technology, what kind of incredible changes it's going to create in the economy, right? And then we think about how relatively young this excitement about this trend is, like really only really a couple of months in. So given how big the structural shift these technologies are going to create, I don't think we've run for very long in terms of investors really getting uh, involved in these trends. Like I track global capital flows very carefully. Like one thing I track is, okay, what is the foreign money that's come into US tech in the last couple of months? It's actually very limited, right? So it seems like foreign investors have kind of missed the AI the turbocharged rally. And, and I wouldn't rule out that they're going to come in later. So I think it's too early to fade it. And, uh, and then I would say in terms of other themes, uh, emerging markets have had a very good run, right? So uh, there are other asset classes that are on the move that have perhaps been forgotten about for many, many years. Uh, so it's not just tech. I would say the emerging market trends are pretty interesting and certainly something we've been watching.
3: Jens Nordweg of Exante Data and Market Reader, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Joining us now, especially at a moment of huge debate, is Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas. And I want to start there, especially welcome, by the way, to New York. I want to start there, especially because there is this increasing fight among House Republicans right now about whether to cut spending much more substantially, maybe raising a question around whether we have to discuss defaulting again in a couple of months. Where do you weigh in on this? How concerned are you?
8: Well, we have our fiscal constraint deal that we struck between House Republicans and President Trump, I mean, President Biden, and and that's put in place, and that governs the top line for appropriations. And now both the House and Senate are working to pass those 12 appropriations bills, and that'll be what uh, tees up, as you say, a spending uh, fight this fall, potentially, as we attempt to pass all 12 of those bills at the agreed-upon level in the fiscal restraint uh, measure or below. And so that's the issue. But let's be clear. Discretionary spending is 40 percent higher than it was uh, just before the pandemic. So we're spending two trillion dollars more per year on spending in this country than we were uh, before the pandemic. And so there's an effort. And I think we've made that clear that we should lower that rate of spending growth and cap it. And that's what we did in this bill.
3: Although Greg Valliere, who was on earlier of AGF, was saying that he's been in this business a long time and he's never seen anything like this, to agree on uh, spending a certain amount and then retracting it to essentially say, okay, well, maybe not. Well, so, that's,
8: not, that's not what the deal is. That's not what the deal is. I think this has gotten exaggerated in the, in the press. These are spending caps. These are ceilings. And so the appropriators now take those numbers and write the spending bills in each uh, department of cabinet government, and they can spend up to that amount. That's the goal. And we've set the goal of, if we're going to bend this spending curve down, we want, don't want to do supplemental appropriations. We want to make the government live within this enormous budget that we have. Do
3: you think that it's worth threatening another department Default, potentially, I don't think this anybody's
8: year. threatening another default. I think what you see is if you don't pass those appropriations bills, then you're confronted with an FY24, fiscal 24 continuing resolution, which uh, I don't think anybody in Congress wants because you, you freeze spending at the current level, but you get all the policies that are frozen too. And members of Congress like to debate in the appropriations process, both those spending levels and the policies that go with them and you can't do any new starts uh, when you have a continuing resolution. So you can't start construction on a new nuclear submarine if you have a continuing resolution. it's not in the best interest of the government to have a continuing resolution, but that's why I don't see it as a default debate at all. It's more of a typical government shutdown type debate, if you want to use that term, on whether we're going to have appropriated funds approved across both houses of Congress or if we're going to be confronted with a continuing resolution.
3: Have you ever seen the Rep- Republican Party as split as it is right now? We've been talking about this for a while, uh, but perhaps the prosecution of former President Trump has brought this into even colder relief just because you have people lining up behind. Behind him and other people saying, "Wait for some information to come out." Where do you stand on this?
8: On are you talking about still talking about spending you're talking about President Trump? I'm talking Trump's, about President Trump: Yeah, President Trump. Well, look, I think he made this situation a lot worse by the way. he handled uh, the interactions with the government regarding the uh, Presidential Records Act. Uh, so I think he's made the situation a lot more challenging. Uh, I do believe that we need complete reform on how we handle classified information. We just saw the news this morning that this young man, National Guardsman out on Cape Cod, is facing 60 years in in prison for releasing and distributing classified information. I think this sends a lot of confusing messages to the American people. We didn't make sure those rules are fair, clear, and that presidents abide by them and everybody else in the government abides by them.
3: So, If I think about the if I think about that issue specifically, it's clear that there have been more than
9: several people who have had, had issues with documents. So whether or not that's more egregious for him than other people, led le- is yet to be determined. Mm -hmm. But clearly, we need to do something
3: with that. Is that just because we're so far behind in what we're doing with our paper versus digital? Is that just because we just don't have a clear view on what really is classified and how classified it
8: needs to be? It's such a good question. In fact, we declassified in the House Intelligence Committee the other day the instances of this. Uh, the, The National Archives reported to us in a hearing that they have found classified material in over 80 uh, 80 different former members of Congress records at their local university or wherever they're stored, and that they've found classified information in unclassified file boxes from every president, from President Reagan on. So this tells me, as a former White House staffer, I can remember vigorously the pack-up process on leaving the administration in January 1993, what was in a classified box and what wasn't, out of my office. So we have rules, but I think we need to improve training. And you raise a point of, do we classify too much information? Do we declassify uh, information effectively and communicate that? And the difference between digital, as in the case of Mrs. Clinton, and paper. So I think there's work to be done here. It doesn't excuse anyone's behavior on this topic, though.
3: Well, to that point. Are you concerned about the rhetoric around this that this is an issue of you know prosecuting the people and going after uh, someone just in terms of political interference? Are you concerned about how this is raising questions about the deep state and reigniting those discussions rather than the discussion around how to keep classified documents secret?
8: you bet Lisa I mean when you indict you know a former president. <laughs> by officials of the Justice Department of his opposition party, you're going to invite uh, political speculation that it's a political activity. And it will absolutely take us off the substance and back to that. But I simply, uh, I think that everybody ought to have clear understanding about how to handle this and do it right. Uh, And the weaponization of the federal government, which you're implying, is the subject of a select committee in Congress this year. Because of the top at the FBI, during uh, the end of uh, the Obama administration and Trump administration, has disappointed a lot of people in Congress. It's under a tremendous scrutiny. Director Ray is on the Hill routinely trying to defend that we have fired the people who brought you Russia, Russia, Russia. We've fired the people who we think did wrong in that whole issue around Mrs. Clinton or around Mr. Trump. And we're trying to clean up our act and do the right thing. But there is skepticism. Among the citizens and people in Congress, and I think it's a heavy lift. It's as heavy a lift as the Church Commission back in the 1970s, and I'm not. That's not hyperbole. So Director Ray has to uh, make the reputation of the FBI, the the one that we all know and, and love, over the over over history.
3: So you see the onus on the FBI rather than on the former president to change the rhetoric.
8: Well, I think the onus is on, on your point about is, is the deep state uh, potentially uh, in trouble and, and creating mischief. I think it was clear in the Russia investigation and, and, and Crossfire Hurricane that they were involved. And it was very political at the top of the FBI. That's hurt the FBI's reputation. I think it's up to Director Ray to help work with Congress and rebuild that reputation, which then I think rebuilds trust through the American people.
3: French Hill, thank you so much. Congressman, really appreciate you uh, taking the time with us.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
5: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients.
3: the S&P Homebuilders ETF I'm just looking at this is up 27% so far this year surging into what the Fed said was weakness surging into a downturn that was going to disinflate uh, this economy right now joining us to answer why and who is right and who is wrong John Lavallo US Homebuilders Analyst at UBS so I want to start John with a question that I keep asking people is anybody Are these home builders selling to anybody who's paying a 7% mortgage rate for that home?
10: That's the beauty of what's going on right now. No. The simple answer is no. If you're buying a home from one of these public home builders, you're paying 6%. You may be paying 5.5%. And so it's a completely game-changing dynamic that's going on right now.
3: So as we look forward about whether that demand can continue, do you see this momentum, or do you think that it's been overplayed, that perhaps people are not seeing what the Fed is seeing, which is people aren't going to be able to afford it. All of the cash buyers came in. Those millennials have moved out of the basement, and now it's just getting too expensive.
10: Lisa, it's a fascinating dynamic that's going on in the market right now. What is really occurring is that there is zero existing home supply out there. So, And the homes that are out there are old, and they are not at the right price point. So there's no competition from that side of the market. Go to the other side of the market where you have the private home builders, which are 60% of the market. They can't get land, they can't get labor, they can't get financing now. And so the demand that's out there, and albeit it's less demand than it has been over the past couple of years, it's all being channeled towards this group of public home builders. And that's where we're seeing these massive market share gains.
4: Such an important point about the aging of the housing stock, mm. the number of units it takes just to replace deteriorated homes, underappreciated story for sure. You know, I think the the real question to me is there's so much about how interest rates are crimping demand, but no one talks about how interest rates affect supply. And I think the median mortgage rate in the U.S. right now is around three percent. Homeowners have about a three percent mortgage rate. So how do you, you know, deal with those supply shortages? How as a home builder, where do you target? Is it the affordable priced homes? Is it the expensive high end homes? How do you how do you like deal with such a, a big demand and such a short supply?
10: Well, Neil, you're spot on. I mean, the, the fact that most folks have mortgages that are struck at a much lower rate than the, the prevailing 7% rate today, making that swap out into another home, the math gets tricky. Right. right? So more people are sort of locked in place. So that supply is not going to loosen up. So as a public home builder, what we believe is the, the main place to target is this entry level first time buyer, mm-hmm. where really it's a need based purchase. You're maybe getting married, having children things and life events that necessitate more space. And that is where we believe, well, that's where the demand, the demand currently is. And that's where we believe the real kind of tail to this will be as well.
3: Okay, hold on a second. Not to push back, <laughs> but to push back. I mean, I'm thinking about people who I know who are creating homes and having babies and paying off student loans yeah. and dealing with jobs where they haven't like, graduated into more senior levels where they're getting paid, and they cannot afford any of these houses. I don't understand where that demand is going to come from unless prices come down.
10: Well, that's, again, what the the public builders are doing is they're making that math work for people. And how they're doing it, we talked about the mortgage rates, right? But they're also, they're building smaller footprints. They're building a little bit further away from city centers. They're offering fewer SKUs, for lack of a better term. So they're becoming much more efficient where they can actually, you know, incentivize folks and help them get into homes.
3: But do any banks want to give them loans? Like, does anyone want to actually extend credit to a home builder at a time when people are worried about city centers yeah. having a complete, you know, sea change with office space not being used and given the fact that prices are so high.
10: Lisa, that's a great point. And that's the beauty of it is that the public home builders have captive finance arms. So they're offering their own, their own, you know, incentives in house and they have access to the capital markets and that's where they're getting the funding.
4: Let's let's kind of turn to the labor market a little bit that supports all this housing construction yeah. and also what we're seeing in uh, in terms of changes of work. For my first question is has remote work changed the the geographical footprint of home builders right now?
10: You know, I don't know that it's changed the geographical footprint, but it's really played into the geographical footprint. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the public home builders, they are all sort of in the sunshine states or the golden horseshoe, however you want to refer yeah. to it. And that's where the job growth is. That's where migration is trending. And that's been, you know, that's been the case for a number of years. But I think work re- working remotely has sort of exacerbated that shift. And we're seeing more folks move into into that, into the kind of the sunbelt. Mm-hmm. And so it's really sort of playing into the hands of the, of the public home builders. Right, right.
4: And then just... The labor shortages yeah. that you know, finding people to do all this building. How extreme is that right now? Uh, what would you like to see in that industry to help get more workers onto the the work sites?
10: Yeah, it's um, it's tough. It's really tough. Getting labor is one of the biggest challenges out there for the home builders. Um, I think that that's where size and scale become increasingly important. And again, the public home builders are well positioned for that. I think what uh, is is needed is that this is an industry if you think about it that hasn't changed in a hundred years. Right. We're still building a house the same way we did stick framing it on site. No
3: AI here.
9: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> well, Not yet.
3: This is actually true, right? This is the the point is that some jobs you cannot replace with artificial intelligence. I just want to give you a, a viewer rights in. So y'all think millennials went from living at home with parents? To paying for highly overvalued homes with all cash, for real. I mean, there is this element of, are you joking me, that this is sort of what's going to continue fueling demand, especially at a time when in certain of these Sunbelt areas, insurance companies are not covering the housing, uh, Mm. the housing insurance anymore, simply because of different weather threats and other things. And people are starting to migrate back. I mean, at what point do you start to see a real softening and potentially housing supply coming back online?
10: Well, maybe to take the last part of the question first to get housing supply to come back online i think we're going to see interest rates need to come in pretty meaningfully and that you know that's anyone's guess um you know i think in order to sort of loosen up if you're a homeowner that has a four and a half percent mortgage making that swap into seven percent is tough if rates come in maybe that. Loosens that up. Um, but I think, you know, your question on the millennials is, is a good one. Uh, what I would say is that millennials are, again, reaching that prime home ownership age of, called you know, 30 to 35 years old, and they're having life events. And, and I know, I know the math is tough, but to the extent that they can make things work and the public home builders on their side trying to make it work. I think we're still in for a good market. I love
3: that. Having life events. sort of, you know, (laughs) having a kid, getting married, doing whatever, moving, getting a job. Uh, Just quickly, to follow up on what you said, that to get supply to come online, you have to see interest rates come in meaningfully. You have to see mortgage rates come in meaningfully. Does that mean you expect prices to fall when interest rates come in?
10: There's just no supply out there, right? And so I think... That's what's really been booing home prices. And we don't expect a big decline in home prices. I think, you know, if you talk to the public home builders, they'll tell you that their average selling price has come in about 10% from the peak. But the peak was was high. And so if you look nationally, home prices are pretty flat on a a year-to-date basis, and we don't see a a big change in that. So it is a tricky scenario to make that sort of affordability equation work. And again, that's why it's so good to be a public home builder today when you can offer that financing.
3: John Lavallo of UBS uh, pitching the home builders quite clearly. (laughs) Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Now stay tuned for today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. It's your daily news podcast delivering today's top stories to your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern. It's all the news you need in just 15 minutes. The Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It starts right now.
9: From the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Friday, June 16th. Coming up today,
6: stocks around the world are on track for their best week since March. The Bank of
9: Japan skirts global trends and holds its stimulus in place. Chinese President Xi Jinping meets with Microsoft founder Bill Gates. And Adobe is the latest tech company to ride the AI rally.
11: A New York man charged in the stabbing death of another subway rider was released without bail, plus deadly tornadoes in a Texas panhandle town. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead.
12: I'm John Staff in sports. Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley shot 62s at the U.S. Open. The Mets host the Cardinals tonight. The Yankees are in Boston.
11: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts.
6: Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager.
9: And I'm Amy Morris. Here are the stories we're following today.
6: Stocks enter the final day of this week on a winning streak. The S&P 500 has risen for six straight days, and it now tops the 4,400 level. The Dow is up almost 20% from its September low, while the NASDAQ 100 hit its highest level since March of 2022, thanks to Apple, NVIDIA, and Microsoft. And eToro global market strategist Ben Layler thinks this rally has legs.
13: I think the tech rally is completely justified. I mean, we're seeing the earnings value, the earnings growth numbers turning up, whether it's AI, whether it's cost-cutting, whether it's investors looking for defensive growth. Um, I, I think this rally is increasingly well-balanced.
6: Ben Ledler and eToro notes global stocks are on track for their best week since March, but trading today could come with plenty of twists and turns. We will see a massive number of options contracts expire today in what is known as quadruple witching.
9: And Nathan, the Federal Reserve remains largely in focus on the heels of this rally. Bets that the central bank will soon end its tightening cycle are fueling optimism. We may get more clues today. St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard and Fed Governor Chris Wallers speak in Norway today. Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin speaks on inflation at an event in Maryland this morning.
6: Well, so far, Amy, every Fed decision in this tightening cycle has been unanimous. And now Larry Summers warns diverging views at the central bank could blow it off course. We spoke with the former Treasury Secretary for the latest
13: edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I found the Fed's action a little bit confusing. This meeting felt like it was driven as much by the internal political dynamics of the Fed as by any consistent and coherent reading of uh, the economic situation. And that was a bit disturbing to me.
6: Those comments from Larry Summers come after the Fed paused rate hikes for the first time in 15 months. Stay tuned for more of that conversation coming up shortly on the program.
9: Central banks, meanwhile, also in focus in Asia overnight. The Bank of Japan held its stimulus measures in place as Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchor Brian Curtis tells us the BOJ is waiting for more sustainable inflation.
6: Governor Kazuo Ueda left unchanged the BOJ's negative interest rate and yield curve control program. The yen immediately weakened against the dollar. Not that there was much doubt to any of this, as it was predicted by 44 of 47 economists we surveyed. Governor Ueda has said the cost of prematurely tightening policy could damage Japan's nascent inflation trend, and he's not willing to risk it. Still, speculation rumbles on that a tweak may be coming in July. Brian Curtis Bloomberg Daybreak. Thank you, Brian. Turning to geopolitics now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken remains on track to travel to China this weekend. The nation's top diplomat will be in Beijing Sunday. He'll speak with several top Chinese officials during his two-day visit, including a possible meeting with China's president, Xi Jinping.
9: Meantime, President Xi has already met with another big name. Microsoft founder Bill Gates sat down with China's president in Beijing. She told the billionaire that China is willing to work with the
6: world on technology innovation and pandemic prevention. You know, Amy, Henry Kissinger is weighing in on geopolitics tied to China. The former secretary of state says a military conflict over Taiwan is probable. That's if the current trajectory remains unchanged. The 100-year-old diplomat sat down for a wide-ranging conversation with Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite.
7: On the current trajectory of relations, I
13: think some military conflict is probable. But I also think the current trajectory of relations must be altered.
6: You can hear the full conversation with former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger on Bloomberg Television. We'll have it for you tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Listen on demand on the Bloomberg Talks podcast. You can find that at Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
9: Turning back to the markets now, we're seeing shares of Adobe gaining this morning. They're up more than 3% in early trading. The company is raising its full-year outlook on optimism that artificial intelligence will spur software demand. We get those details from Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett.
2: Adobe is the
6: longtime top seller of software for creative professionals. It is adding generative
11: AI features throughout its products. Last week, the company unveiled enterprise-level subscriptions for the new tools, which include legal assurance against
6: copyright claims. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Charlie, thanks. We have news on Bank of America this morning. We're told the firm's commercial banking unit is seeing a surge in new clients. And Bloomberg's Doug Krisner has that story. It follows the failure of several regional banks in the U.S. during March. B of A says its commercial banking unit had an increase of 55% in new clients in the month of May compared to last year, and the momentum is expected to continue. Bank of America saying the unit is on track to report 50% growth in customer additions for all of 2023. That would be up from 35% in new relationships last year. And as a result, Bank of America is planning to bulk up staffing to keep up with demand, this will include hiring senior bankers from outside firms. In New York, I'm Doug Krisner, Bloomberg Daybreak.
9: Thank you, Doug. Walt Disney losing a top executive, the company's chief financial officer, taking a family medical leave of absence, stepping down from a role as the, at the world's largest entertainment company. Disney says Christine McCarthy will be replaced on an interim basis by Kevin Lansbury, the CFO of Disney's theme parks division. And this is Bloomberg.
6: Time now to take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world with Bloomberg's Michael Varr. Good morning, Michael.
11: Good morning, Nathan. A 20-year-old man accused in Tuesday's deadly subway stabbing of a passenger in Brooklyn was released without bail. Jordan Williams was charged with manslaughter and criminal possession of a weapon in the death of a homeless man, 36-year-old Victor Weidrogo. Witnesses say Weidrogo was harassing subway riders and at one point punched Williams' girlfriend before the deadly stabbing. Williams' attorney, Jason Goldman, told ABC7 it is a clear case of self-defense.
0: You have two choices right now. You can sit there and get assaulted, and your friends or family or loved ones can get assaulted and seriously injured, or you can fight back and get arrested and maybe get charged, maybe go to Rikers, maybe get released. So, you know, what are you supposed to do?
11: Williams' mother says that her son cares about life and is extremely remorseful. A deadly outbreak of severe weather. At least three people are dead and more than 100 injured. In the Texas Panhandle town of Perryton, a mobile home park took a direct hit. Perryton Fire Chief Paul Dutcher.
0: Searching these areas, searching the debris fields, making sure we've got the uh, people gathered
11: up. Tornadoes were also reported from Oklahoma to Michigan. At least 15 people were killed and 10 others were hurt. After a bus carrying more than two dozen people crashed into a semi-truck in Manitoba, Canada. Authorities say the bus crossed the westbound lanes of Highway 1 and was crossing the eastbound lanes when it collided with the semi. As drama continues with Republicans in the House, the country is potentially headed for another showdown on government funding in October. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter reports. Even though a bipartisan bill raised the debt ceiling while cutting spending passed earlier this month, this is another battle, funding another round. Senator Lindsey Graham says not looking good. The chance of passing all the appropriation bills where um, the House and Senate agree on numbers almost zero. Graham says there is a big divide between the two chambers of the legislature. In San Francisco, I'm Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Daybreak. The Supreme Court, in a seven to two decision, upheld a landmark law giving Native American families priority in the adoption of Native children. A white Texas couple had challenged the law as discriminatory on the basis of race. Global News, twenty four hours a day, powered by more than twenty seven hundred journalists and analysts in over one hundred twenty countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Nathan. Thank you, Michael. time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update,
12: brought to you by Tri-State Audi. Good morning, John Stashauer. Good morning, Nathan. U.S. Open courses are traditionally known to be extremely challenging even for the best golfers in the world. Not really the case at the L.A. Country Club. Ideal conditions led to two historic rounds of 62, Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley. There had only been 162 ever in any major. Brandon Grace, six years ago at the PGA, Shoffley was bogey-free. Fowler set a record with 10 birdies. He made five birdie putts of more than ten feet. I didn't really
10: know or, or see uh, any scores and then I saw that Xander was at seven at that point. Um, and I'm not sure if he even knew where I was or anything but it was kinda cool to to see if he did to see he you know kinda latched on and we were you know taking off a
12: bit. Both Fowler and Shoffley have been chasing their first career major victory after numerous close calls, although Fowler had been in a deep slump. The last two years, he had not even qualified to play the Open. Dustin Johnson, 2016 Open winner, only two shots behind the co-leaders. And Rory McIlroy, whose only Open victory was 12 years ago, trails by three. Round two today. The public money to help build a new stadium in Las Vegas, the Oakland A's. Now a done deal. It still needs the approval of the owners, but... Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred said he feels sorry for A's fans, but that there was no community sport to keep the team in Oakland. Yankees and Red Sox tonight at Fenway. Yanks' first visit to Boston. Mets host the Cardinals, who are 15 games under 500. Homer Jones has passed away, a speedy Giants receiver in the late 1960s. And after a touchdown, Jones made history, becoming the first to then spike the ball. Homer Jones was 82. John Stash Hour, Bloomberg Sports.
11: From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager.
6: It has been quite the week on Wall Street. We are coming off six straight winning sessions for stocks. We saw a mixed U.S. inflation report. Headline prices cooled while core inflation rose. Traders saw that as dovish. And finally, we got a pause in rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. The first time they did not raise rates in 15 months. Let's take stock of it all now with Larry Summers, the Bloomberg News contributor and former U.S. Treasury Secretary, sat down for a conversation with Bloomberg's Romain Bostick. Let's listen in to part of that right now. Larry, let's talk about the Fed meeting. More importantly, that Fed pause. Not necessarily a surprise, but do you think it was appropriate?
13: I'm not sure. I found the Fed's action a little bit uh, confusing. I understand the arguments for not hiking uh, at this meeting, but those arguments wouldn't point towards signaling two further rate increases. They wouldn't point towards significantly revising the forecast towards a stronger economy and more inflation. I understand the arguments uh, for having gone the other way, but I don't really understand the internal consistency of an approach of pausing at this meeting, but then signaling to further uh, rate hikes down the road and signaling that they no longer expect unemployment to increase nearly as much as they used to expect it. So this meeting felt like it was driven as much by the internal political dynamics of the Fed as by any consistent and coherent reading of uh the economic situation and that was a bit disturbing they raised some of their
6: economic projections or at least they improved a little bit here but you still have a market that seems to be betting on this idea of a recession the idea that the fed itself may have actually over-tightened, or at least is on its way to doing that
13: that would not be my best guess Uh, i think it's very hard to read but my best guess is that uh, the consumer which is 70% of the economy, appears to be running really uh, quite uh, strong at this point. We've got very strong employment data, much faster than uh, population growth. The indicators on wages are a bit mixed, but the ones that seem most reliable to me that adjust for changes in the composition of the labor force are showing uh, substantial uh, strength. So I don't see the idea that we've got a durable reduction in in inflation clearly established, nor do I see clear evidence of a slowing uh, coming. So in that context, uh, I think the Fed has probably got to maintain a posture of, moving towards restraint. But I think that they ought to decide what their balancing of risks is. Mm-hmm. And I was struck that the balancing of risks that was implicit in not moving this time was kind of inconsistent with the balancing of risks that was, in, that was signaled by the two tightenings and by uh, the forecast uh, revisions. I want to go uh, overseas uh, to China. Uh, They had a much different
6: policy meeting coming out of the People's Bank of China, a cut. And there's been a lot of discussion here, Larry, about the health of the Chinese economy in light of the data we've gotten and in light of some of the reports by Bloomberg and others that they are considering uh, fiscal or at least some sort of economic stimulus measures to get that economy going back again.
13: I think the Chinese have a very difficult uh, set of challenges ahead of them. There are very serious financial overhangs uh, coming out of what's happening in uh, real estate. I take a somewhat more medium-term view of it. and What's an economy about? An economy is about people and it's about capital. And what we know is that the number of births in China has fallen by almost 50% in the last six years. And we know that, uh, Bloomberg reported that the number of millionaires leaving China was kind of high, high by historical standards and high by global standards. So whether it's uh, supply of people, investment in uh, new capital, I think you've got some fundamental bets that aren't running that positive.